0: Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. Thank you for tuning in to Inspiring Women. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Alexis DeGasso, who is a postdoctoral fellow, a psychologist who currently is at Providence Behavioral Health. Alexis received her master's and doctorate degree from Williams James College in Newton, Massachusetts. She completed her um, APA, American Psychological Association accredited doctoral in in psychology, and her internship at Astor Services for children and families in New York. Now, Dr. DeGasso has worked in a range of settings that includes diagnosing and treating children, adolescents, young adults, and families, and she's worked in a number of the behavioral health competencies in terms of um, both trauma as well as other types of items. She has worked abroad, which has influenced some of her work, and she's also tried out and started to develop some different therapies, which she uses in her practice. And I am really looking forward to this conversation. Dr. DeGasso, thank you for being on Inspiring Women.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. I'm glad to be here.
0: Terrific. Well, you know, I always start these conversations. I always find these career journeys. How did you pick where you are now? But why don't you just tell us, what are you doing right now? What are you doing your day-to-day profession?
1: Yeah. So right now I'm currently working as um, completing my postdoctoral fellowship in clinical psychology at Behavioral Health Associates in Providence. And in my role here, I am so I'm working towards licensure. That's the, the part of my journey that I'm at right now. So it's the final year where I've had my doctorate degree, but need to take my licensing exam to become fully licensed and work independently on my own. Um, but I'm seeing clients in individual and family therapy for part of my time. And then the other half of my time this year, I am the project manager of a quality improvement study with the goal of increasing the use of clinical outcome measures so that way we can track treatment progress and have those um, kind of quality measures inform the care that we are delivering and tailored treatment to meet the needs of the client.
0: So how, how many years of schooling So, how, before you become fully licensed?
1: So it was officially five five years of schooling. And then this is kind of my end of my sixth year, going into my seventh year um, of being starting all of this process, um, back in 2015.
0: Okay. Well, great. So you have done a lot of studying, but in that you've also done a lot of practical work along the way in terms of all the different settings that, um, you've already worked in. So Alexis, as, as you've done that, what, what drew you to mental health, behavioral health as something that you wanted to become licensed in.
1: Yeah. So you might find this, uh, interesting Lori. but I actually wanted to be a dentist growing up. okay
0: that's interesting
1: so as a kid I just loved teeth loved going to the dentist like so my dream for years was this you loved going to the dentist okay
0: okay keep going sorry Yes,
1: (laughs) and yeah and I worked in um, an orthodontic office in high school and in college like I was very involved and invested in this and then It got to a point, you know, during my undergraduate time at Boston College, where I kind of sat back and I reflected a little bit more on why, why questioning, you know, that that path, why did I pick that? Why was I still on this path? Is this what I wanted to do? And that really led me to my volunteer year of service that I did after college, because I at that point was like, well, I don't know if I want if this is the right path for me or what I want to do. So In that year um, off, even though it was really like a a year on, I worked at an early head start um, in West Baltimore and really was exposed to a completely different type of community and working with these young children, like I love working with kids, I've always loved working with kids, but seeing things through their eyes and both of us experiencing some things at the same time. So experiencing like, and witnessing police in their communities, you know, arresting people right in front of them and having them on the ground. And I'm like, this is my first time experiencing this. And you know, the two-year-olds that I was taking on a walk, like they were also experiencing this at the same time. And it was in that role. I really saw the impact of trauma at a very young age and thinking about like what that then could do, you know, in terms of development to be exposed to these things at such a young age, you know, as they grow older, what's going to happen, you know, are there, are they going to experience after effects of trauma? Also seeing like lack of access to resources, like having young children where I'm like this child, it looks like has autism from my limited understanding at that time, right? Because this was before I even went to grad school but not knowing where we could get this child evaluated or get them the services that they need. And so that really inspired me and kind of confirmed for me, like, I think the path that's best is for me to go into mental health and and pursue my degree in psychology instead. And so at that time, then applied and um, joined, you know, started my, my doctoral program at William James College, where I've just now kind of continue to grow and change my my path as i as i've moved along through the program
0: Well, that is very interesting in terms of just a volunteer experience, really shaping and reshaping, you know, things that became of interest to you. So when you were a volunteer, were you able to do things that were helpful? Did you see a direct connection to how um, just being a volunteer in an untrained uh, scenario could be beneficial in some way that got you hooked?
1: Definitely. Yeah, we... So we had a, um, a psychologist who was able to come into our classroom like once a month and we would be able to ask her questions at that time and really learn from her about developmental milestones, social, emotional learning of children, you know, warning signs and things to look out for, for certain developmental delays. And so just in talking with her, I mean, it was such a brief interactions that we had together, but I saw the value then of men- of mental health and what role she was providing even though we needed that you know so much more frequently like it was still something and from meeting with her but also doing some of my own work there like I was incorporating different social emotional training and and like teaching objectives um, in the classroom with all the the two and three-year-olds that I was working with so able to work with them, talk with them about feelings like at a very, very basic basic level, right? These are kids that are just developing how to how to talk and use their fine motor skills and all these other developmental skills. but that I could play a part and form these connections too. I mean, with people, like the mothers and the children, um, and I say mothers because it was all it was all mothers that year that I worked with, but that were very, very different from me and in, in terms of how, We were raised in terms of where, you know, we grew up in the country, and I was still able to form a connection with with them.
0: Okay. And, And so, Alexis, you also did some of your learning abroad. So, in terms of some of the work and the exposure that you've had, you've had opportunity to work with young children young adults and a range of different types of issues very acute ones suicide prevention which is a very challenging issue to emotional behavioral type of thing maybe give us a, um, a sense of the types of things and i'm interested in how it might vary if it does from work that you did in different countries than work that you're doing in the united states
1: mm-hmm. yeah and so I have always been interested, you know, in working internationally and traveling um, in my own personal life. And there's a lot of, there's mental health, you know, and there's how we see it in the U.S. and a really U.S.-centric view to mental health problems. But you go to other countries, and I was interested in learning about this. So one thing about my program at William James College is that I have A double concentration. So I have a concentration in children and families of adversity and resilience, and then also a concentration in global mental health. And so my coursework really prepared me to have these opportunities, right, to work in other countries. So what Lori's referencing is that I I was able to do two different immersion trips in my graduate career, and then also some in my undergraduate career, right, to different countries teaching Um, healthcare education when I was an undergrad, but then in graduate school, working most specifically, I'll talk about this with, um, in Guyana, which is a country in South America, for those of you who are not familiar with the country of Guyana. And they, at one point in like 2015, 2016, had the highest suicide rate per capita of any country in the world. And my school, like we worked in, as part of one of my classes, like helped create a plan to examine like why that was, why is this country have a highest suicide rate? What uh, cultural factors may be playing a, a part of this? What social and economic factors might be playing a part? And in the class, like really working on looking at all of the multitude you know, of factors that could be affecting this rate. And then what do we do about it? And so going and diving into research on suicide prevention efforts in other countries of similar socioeconomic status as Guyana, um, but also looking into their history and learning more. I mean, now I could tell you so much about this country. I've done a lot of research on it, about the, the history of uh, colonialism and indentured servitude that was there and how all of that has now played a part in, in their suicide crisis that they had.
0: So that that speaks to um, issues that certainly are coming to the surface more and more in the public health arena in the United States where the social determinants of health and the more upstream, as well as historical factors that have led to uh, social issues such as structural racism and things like that that are becoming more familiar terms to many um, in the United States, those kinds of issues have dramatic impact on people's health, not necessarily mental health or behavioral health that I'm speaking to, but just chronic conditions and things of that nature. So I think what you're saying is that Guyana, that those long-term historical factors also are contributing factors to that horrifying statistic of the uh, highest suicide rate. I mean, that's a terrible thing um, to be having to examine. And I'm sure that while, you know, you're looking at all those factors, it also comes with a degree of just uh, sadness in terms of what Mm -hmm. a a large challenge that, you know, to try and work with and Mm -hmm. and, uh, try and reverse that trend.
1: Yeah, exactly. And And I do think, like you're saying, too, like it's all of these factors that play a part in mental health, you know, and just like in physical health, too, you know, not just genetics, um, but environmental factors um, and also generational factors.
0: Did you find things in that research and what you learned? I don't know what an immersion program is, but I have to imagine it's a concentrated time um, <laughs> that you only begin to understand how big these issues are and how much more you can learn. Where are there, are there things that can be done? Did you find um, opportunities of things to work on in a positive nature?
1: Yeah, so so during the, the immersion part of it, so I did a lot of work prior to the actual immersion experience in the country, um, but so doing like the research on the front end and creating presentations and collaborating with partners in that country as well, um, local NGOs, but then the, for the actual immersion part, it was going to the country with a group of us and delivering suicide prevention trainings to different groups of people and this is using the research that we had like found about other suicide prevention trainings but really what we wanted to do was learn from them right here their experiences like here we're coming in with all of this research you know i i'm like i feel like i know this country before i've gotten there but in reality you know i don't know the the intricacies of what they are experiencing as a people And so to hear from them, get their feedback, while also being able to provide education on ways that they could prevent suicide as a community. So we met with local community leaders and did a train the trainer program. So the idea is that, you know, with going into any country and doing any sort of work, it's making sure that we're not, once again, imposing a kind of colonialistic framework onto them, right? Of like, we are the saviors, we're here to come save you. It's like, no, we're here to work with you, but we have some areas of expertise that we can offer, we can train you, and then you can go on to continue this work, right? Because at the end of the day, we're going to leave and we're going to go back to, you know, the US. So working with the local leaders to say, here, here's education on suicide. Like, it does not make someone suicidal to ask them if they are having thoughts about hurting or killing themselves like that is not what makes someone then have that thought come in their head and that's like a basic disbelief and stigma that people have all over the world right and even in the U.S. where I'm constantly correcting that when I'm teaching parents about asking their children about you know if they're feeling suicidal and so it was that same sort of education that we were doing there but getting their feedback, getting their input and encouraging them to then create their own, you know, initiatives and projects in the community to change this horrible statistic that they all knew was there, but they didn't really know how bad it was, you know, on like grander scheme.
0: Yeah, well, let me ask you about um your work coming, bringing it back to the United States, mm-hmm. and you know things like stigma certainly are out there as it relates to mental health and behavioral health types of issues. However, also as we are still in, not quite out of this pandemic, mental health is on the mind, so to speak, um no pun intended, of many people. You know, a lot of people are feeling both burnt out, and there are a lot of um new organizations as well as innovative organizations in the mental health space. What are you seeing? Are there enough programs out there? Are people getting the help that they need? Do you think all people who need help are getting the services? What are you, what are you seeing?
1: So as someone who focuses you know, mostly on children and adolescents, we are seeing skyrocketing numbers of you know, increased emergency room visits and just increasing mental health among children, and what's scary too is that you know I was at uh, grand rounds recently where we were presented with research about suicide rates and how suicide rates among children under the age of eight are increasing, and how youth used to be a protective factor for children against suicide and. And so the, the needs are rising, and our infrastructure that we currently have in the US to meet those needs is not there. There's there's a lack of programs, partial hospitalization programs, inpatient units for psychiatric uh, reasons for children and adolescents. So we are we're kind of struggling right now to try to meet this need. And I, I'd say any child psychologists you talk to right now, their caseload is going to be full and they're going to be, you know, trying to juggle a lot of clients at the same time because there's a high need.
0: Well, when you do this work, um, is there one singular approach to um, how you work with whether it's parents or adolescents or children, or do you try a variety of approaches of approaches are some more effective than others are there are approaches evolving rapidly Uh, what what's happening there.
1: Yeah, I'd say um, definitely my training, my background was more based in cognitive behavior therapy, which is a therapy that looks specifically at thoughts, behaviors, and feelings, and like how they're all interconnected. Um, And there's a lot of evidence to support that specific type of framework. But I would say also that a lot of different providers use different orientations, right? And you have to kind of match what the presenting problem is, who is this family you have in front of you, this child, this you know, young adult, and what, what is their need right now and matching your intervention to meet their needs.
0: Well, the well, it's a very difficult topic, and you know, just uh, hearing you how you are talking about it with the intention to not have things as awful as suicide—that is wonderful for anything that you can prevent and to provide options for people in terms of whether it's just talking about it, if that can be one step that is um, helpful to avoid something as traumatic and awful as a suicide. I'm glad to know that you're thinking about then at that as well as how to expand programs like that. Alexis, I also wanted to ask you about some of your work. You, you're on something called a social justice committee um, in your in your current role. Can you tell us what that is? And, um, you know, I understand that the uh, point of this is to infuse anti-racist and social justice practices into client care. So what does that mean and what are you doing?
1: Yeah, so this is a uh, committee that was formed prior to me um, joining here, but I, when I heard about it, joined immediately because it kind of aligns with a lot of my prior work and a lot of my interests in working as a psychologist. And so what we're doing as part of our committee is really trying to examine whether our organization here is, is paying attention to this stuff. Are we meeting the needs of our clients? Are we ensuring, you know, Equal access to care, for example? Are we looking at where our referrals are coming from and making sure that we accept everyone's insurance, right? Are we providing a safe and open space to talk with our clients about racism and prejudice? So I think those are parts of it. The other part is like how we as providers are self reflecting, how we are uncovering maybe our own biases and stereotypes or blind spots, you know, so that we understand how racism or prejudice, you know, might have affected us and in providing like ongoing learning opportunities for all of the clinicians at our practice.
0: And as a young person, as somebody who has international experience, do you think, do you bring something into this conversation that you find is helpful in a larger organization?
1: Yeah, so I I think it's interesting you bring up, yeah, that part, I think I've reflected on that a lot this year of my youth and being the, the person here who's like the most recently out of graduate school and how there's differences in the training that I received in more recently graduating than a lot of my coworkers here. And so providing education to, to them about things that I've learned, things, you know, different trainings I've been to, um, the classwork and coursework that I've covered, so I think there is something that I bring definitely to the table, which which helps me feel like valued too. We're in an organization where I am one of the well, the youngest probably member of the team.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, in so many initiatives um, like this across organization, there's always talk about bringing a wide variety of voices to the table, but I think bringing young voices to the table is also just so important, just those types of perspectives, which come with a lot of information Alexis, I want to close out on a couple of just questions for you about how you think about, you know, you're at the beginning stages of a lot of um, schooling and beginning, you know, your career journey. How do you think about your career journey? You, you're not a dentist, um, mm-hmm. you're, a, you're a psychologist, that's your, that's your profession. Do you, do you have a vision for yourself years from now, or is it just sort of like one day at a time and, you know, what the next one or two years looks like?
1: Well, considering you know that I had my whole life planned out when I was very young, um, I am always thinking about my future and where I want to go and how I want to get there. And I, right now, want would love to one day like be this global mental health consultant. And I don't exactly know what that looks like yet, but I would envision it being working kind of as part of some sort of international agency where we are helping improve access to mental health resources and improving mental health infrastructure, you know, around the world, but also in the U.S. and and taking on more of a policy, you know, framework as well, because even though I love doing the individual clinical work, and I think there will always be room for me to be doing that work, I, I think that's important for me, but also, you know, reaching out a wider, to a wider group of people, like through policy and program interventions as well. So ideally in the future, it's gonna look like a lot of things and not just doing um, one, one set thing, but I see my kind of career as a psychologist being lifelong
0: so, taking, taking the interest in travel and what you've learned from international, bringing that passion into a more global um, impact is how I'm hearing that. It sounds like a fantastic vision for yourself, Alexis. I love it. So, you know, just in terms of closing out here, this has been such a great conversation. I've really learned a lot. I think the work that you're doing is important, and I love the passion that you're bringing um, to the work. That's just, just wonderful to hear. Alexis, as we close out today on inspiring women, I'd just love to hear from you. You know, best advice you've ever received that you might want to give to listeners as we close out today.
1: I've been thinking about this and thinking about like advice from others and I one I had one teacher um, in high school and you know, now you know a little bit about me and I've been, you know, on a on a line, on a path and she told me that the only thing that you can count on in life is change and so not Get so caught up necessarily on all the plans and that is something that i've come back to several several times you know along my journey even this far and and it's something i try to keep in the forefront of my mind even though it slips to the back a lot but that things are always changing and evolving and to keep an open mind so that i can see the opportunities that might be right in front of me maybe things that i had never considered doing That
0: is, I think that's really sound advice. And that's particularly wonderful things to keep front of mind, particularly at the beginning stages, all stages actually of a career progression. This has been such a great discussion. I really appreciate our time today on Inspiring Women. We've been speaking to Dr. Alexis DeGasso and Alexis, thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you so much for this opportunity to reflect, you know, on
0: my career so far. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.